Before we get to this week's episode, I want to remind you about Digiday Plus. We are about to wrap up our next magazine issue. This is going to be a special can issue. We'll talk all things can. And also, we're going to delve into the world of influencers, uh, the future for free streaming networks and push notifications and much more. To make sure you don't miss that and the chance to read an unlimited amount of content for us, please use a special discount offer to sign up for Digiday Plus. To subscribe to Digiday Plus for a mere $49 for three months, that's that's an amazing deal, go to digiday.com slash subscribe and enter the code intro at checkout. Now on to the episode. The Financial Times has long charged readers for access to its content. This was a formerly novel concept. It is not novel any longer as many publishers are pivoting to paid. The FT is farther along in this journey. It recently reached 1 million subscribers. I'm Brian Marcy, and this is the Digiday Podcast. On this week's episode, I visit John on the very day the FT moved back to its historic headquarters in London. And we discuss the FT's journey to this 1 million subscribers, what is in the cards for the media industry overall, and this pivot to paid, and much more. John, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. This is a special day. It's a very special day. So, explain other than being on the Digiday podcast. (laughs) That just makes the day that more special. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, it's a very special day. This is my first day in Bracken House, which is the new old uh, FT headquarters. And it's indeed where I started my career with Financial Times 31 or 32 years ago. So, it's a a very moving move back. Right. uh, So, the the FT was here for a while, it moved. my geography's all messed up. Yeah, London. well, no, it, it was, moved. It was here for decades, yes. and then we moved south uh, right. across the river um, in eighty uh, nine, um, and around that time, of course, the industry started moving south as well. So okay. there was a phase of huge disruption and turmoil from then on. Um, so it's great to be back. It's great to be back in strong shape, and I think everybody's feeling really excited about this uh, this move and this building. And of course, it coincides with us just reaching our one millionth. A paid subscriber. Yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, we could talk about the building all, all day, but uh, let's talk about the the million paid subscribers. Big milestone, obviously. A million is a big number. Um, it, for for those who don't know, explain the sort of journey. I mean, how how big of a, a leap was this? It's huge, um, and basically, it's been the north star for the organization for three or four years. We felt that if we set a big, bold, ambitious um, goal around our subscription of paid for journalism model. That would bring the whole organization together, but also give us a sustainable business and financial base. When we left this building 30-odd years ago, all of our revenues were from advertising. All of our circulation was in print. To come back now today with three-quarters of our revenues in digital and most of our revenues from our journalism, the heart and core of our business, shows the scale of transformation we've been through. So it's it's a pretty big number uh, in many senses, obviously not just a million, it's what it means in terms of the transformation of the organization mm-hmm. and our focus on journalism and revenues from that as the central driver of the Financial Times. Okay, so in the past year, how many are we talking about adding? So we've been adding double-digit levels for the past three or four years. So we've been adding tens of thousands, high tens of thousands uh, every year for the past three or four years. So the FT is one of the, the success cases out there in this this pivot to paid. It was it was an early early adopter of the pivot to paid. Um, but I think the question is whether the, the market is going to bifurcate. You've got those at the top. The New York Times puts up great numbers. Uh, Wall Street Journal and FT put up good numbers. Guardian is putting up uh, very good numbers. 
Um, and then you've you've got like a very focused uh, group that that do well, some B two B, but some some other community based pub- publishers. But now we're seeing this this big middle trying to go into subs. Any caution? Any cautions <laughs> flashing for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's what I would say. It's kind of necessary, but really difficult. Uh, we were very early pioneers in this area, and it was lonely out there in paid for journalism land. I've just come back from uh, California, and I remember going out there when we launched our paid for model. And I was regarded as some, the FT was regarded as slightly freakish for daring <laughs> to charge for journalism online. And I remember people telling me very clearly, um, you know, the uh, the internet wants to be free. And there was this kind of deep um, resistance to mm-hmm. charging for journalism online. We always felt that quality journalism required a paid for component because we always felt that advertising alone was not going to support the kind of scale of newsroom required to do journalism properly. I think more and more people recognize that as they saw the rise of Google, Facebook, the other social media and search platforms who obviously hoovered up. So first, yeah. of, all, first of all, advertising went to digital and then it went to right. kind of Facebook and Google. I, I always joke yeah. about that Mary Meeker slide that people in California would always show, showing the gap between time spent online and budget spent. And, and they said, well, it's <laughs> yes. going to narrow. And it did. Yeah. It completely narrowed, Absolutely. but it just all went to Google and Facebook. Exactly. And I think uh, it became apparent to other publishers that paid for was important. Uh, and I think more and more people are trying to develop subscription operations, and some have succeeded very well, and there's no one-size-fits-all. You mentioned The Guardian. I think their paid-for approach is different from ours, but it seems to be working. But what I do think is true is that it's very hard for any publisher nowadays to have a viable strategy that doesn't involve some kind of paid-for component. As I say, though, it's a lot easier understood than done. It takes a long time to build the um, the technology, the techniques, the expertise, the relationship with readers to get them mm-hmm. into that subscriber relationship. I want to get into the nitty gritty of that in a, in a minute, but a, a lot of people would put asterisks next to the FT and the Wall Street Journal because it's other people's money. It, it's, they would say, well, it's a B2B model. Uh, businesses are, are typically paying for it. Um, Harder, harder to get people to, to open up their own wallets. I think that's partly true. Uh, obviously, we have a very successful B2B operation, but we also have a very successful consumer operation with people paying out of their own pocket. Um, so I think probably it Is has... Is there like a breakdown of that? Yeah. So um, we can give you know, the, the precise numbers. We have several hundred thousand uh, individual subscribers and we have... Uh, several hundred thousand, okay. slightly more B two B subscribers. But my my my. So it's feeling, not just corporate credit cards. Absolutely not. Okay. And and I've always been you know very keen to point out that as long as you have a differentiating factor, something that a reader uh, values and thinks is worth paying for, then I think a subscription model is is viable. And if you don't have a proposition where a reader is willing to pay, then you've got a pretty deep problem. So yeah. I think it's a measure That's the of, middle part that I'm talking about. Yeah, but I, I do think it's possible to find a point of differentiation or appeal around a whole number of axes. It could be a particular brand feature. It could be a particular columnist. It could be a particular subject. So I think that a publication that doesn't have any point of differentiation or any um, reason for a reader to subscribe has pretty fundamental problems that go beyond the inability to have a subscription model. (laughs) Well, it's it's a direct (laughs) manifestation of that. But I think it's interesting you say that Mm. because I have this theory that a lot of the chasing of scale that that the advertising system, the commoditization of it drove are working completely against a lot of these publishers right now because, I mean, there's a reason that Meghan Markle stories, they 
they perform well. They're, they're great for a, an ads model. They're not really a great point of differentiation. And the other problem, of course, is that, you know, scale for a publisher is a very different proposition um, concerning scale for a, for a big tech platform or social right. media platform. And they also have the data and the expertise and the smarts to back it up. So it's a pretty formidable proposition to play, try and play a scale game mm-hmm. against the big tech companies. You mentioned the sort of building up the internal expertise. And I think that is sometimes um, underappreciated that you, you don't just put up a, a, a paywall or a meter or a dynamic paywall, whatever you want, without um, getting really deep into the weeds of performance marketing, of propensity models. Um, what is the What's the internal operation look like at the FT? Well, there's a lot of grit and a lot of graft and a lot of um, science and thought applied to the whole subscription funnel, right from the reach dimension where you bring people into the top of the funnel all the way through the journey to subscription and then retention. Right. So it's a very um, deeply thought through a process that's being optimized all the time. And frankly, I joined journalism because I wanted to be a foreign correspondent and write <laughs> stories, which I did, and it was great. Next um, thing you know, they're talking <laughs> propensity models. <laughs> yeah. And now I get really excited about data. I never figured <laughs> that that was going to be um, one of the things that was very exciting. But we, and I, I should also admit that it was partly accidental, that when we moved to a subscription model, it was frankly because we needed to secure a revenue stream online because frankly the platform was on fire it was a kind of yeah uh, it was an urgent thing we didn't really understand uh, in those days just how important the data dimension was and was going to be because once you had that subscriber relationship you then had access to this increasingly rich amount of data about who your readers were how much time they spent with you what was interesting them and you know in my days mainly i was you know i was really around in the days of print journalism and i didn't really know who was reading my stuff how long they were spending with it i had no insight into that relationship now we know everything we give everybody every reader has a score for how long they spend with the ft uh, how long they're reading the articles, how frequently they come back. And we optimize um, across all of those uh, areas mm-hmm. for all of our readers. And, so that's how, and that also helps say, I, I assume it gives you signals for who is at risk of churning. Totally. Um, you can really understand the most efficient marketing spend, who's closest to being a subscriber in terms of the pattern of readership that they, um, they project. So you can target your marketing money uh, much more efficiently and much more effectively on acquisition and then on retention. So you're at a million. Um, I assume two million is the next big goal. <laughs> yeah, we're going to keep on going. Yeah, yeah exactly. You should keep going. Um, and I mean, the FTA is a is a global publication, but I would guess in order to to hit those goals, you you got to be um, getting even deeper into other markets. Yeah. So you know, when we left this building, we were exclusively UK. Um, and now three quarters of our readers are ex-UK. And we see significant growth potential in pretty much every market, but we, we should be bigger in the US. Uh, we think there's a big opportunity for us in the US where clearly the polarization of media and to a certain extent the more national focus of a lot of media I think creates a big opportunity uh, for a brand like the FT that is very independent in terms of its coverage and very global in terms of its DNA. Uh, we're big in China. We are probably the biggest, actually, source of uh, quality international news in China, in Chinese, and we think we can grow significantly there. We think India is a big opportunity. We finally resolved a long-running dispute over the use of our brand in India, so we think there's a lot to play for there. So there's no um, 
we see a, a whole lot more headroom uh, for mm -hmm. the FT to grow. So let's talk about the U.S. market and then, then talk about the other markets. Um, U.S. market's gigantic. It's deep, and and lots of people like like to to expand into it. But it's it's also very competitive. You talked about the polarization aspect of it because I don't know if you noticed the politics in the U.S. <laughs> much like here, they're a little fraught these days. And you know, there's this thought that you know the New York Times is part of the resistance. The 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 Wall Street Journal, at least, absolutely on the opinion side, um, is is part of. I guess I don't know. Not, not, not the resistance. It, can you play it down the middle in, in in the United States political context? For sure. I mean, I think as a, I think there's an opportunity there for an independent voice in that polarized um, framework. We certainly get that message right. from. But the implication is that the New York Times is not um, playing it down the middle. Well, I, I never comment. I think one of the few <laughs> things I've learned um, in my time it's like as the a only publisher. Paper, but. <laughs> they say no FT, no comment. But um, it is, it's never a smart strategy to comment on other publishers' positions. Okay. But we know our position, and we're very clear about our proposition uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere, which is to be that uh, independent voice and that global voice. I think at a time when borders are going up and barriers are going up and there's just generally a more nationalistic uh, sentiment around so many um, societies that crossing borders and making connections between businesses and societies in a country and across um, borders is hugely valuable mm -hmm. and deeply appreciated. And certainly the response we get uh, from our readers and potential readers is that there's definitely a demand um, for more of mm -hmm. that. Um, how has, or if at all, uh, being owned by Nikkei sort of changed the outlook? Obviously, you go to Japan more frequently, but... Yeah. Well, I love Tokyo, and I'm there seven or eight <laughs> times a year, so it's just as well I do. Okay. It's, a, it's a long journey, but worth it. Um, I think one of the many great things about the Nikkei ownership is that it's private. And in an industry that's going through the kind of upheavals that news media has gone through, is going through, and will continue to go through, is being able to have that longer-term perspective, not have to respond to quarterly earnings results and pressures. Because, Frank, you know, the volatility, advertising is still very important to us, and it can be a very fickle friend, advertising. It can go up and down very quickly. Um, so being able to take a longer-term perspective about strategic investments um, and strategic moves um, with Nikkei has been um, has has been wonderful, and they have a very deep understanding of our strategy, uh, deep respect for our editorial um, values and editorial independence, um, and as I say, that long term um, support and commitment uh, for our investment and global mm -hmm. strategy. You made a couple of uh, at least purchases, or I think one was an investment. One one uh, you bought the Next Web, yep. and then there was also Deal Street Asia. Was that a full acquisition? Or is uh, that is more on the Nikkei side. Oh, that's yeah. on the Nikkei. Yeah. Okay, so that's yeah. on. Are you looking? Are, is other? Do you see verticals and B two B verticals as a potential growth area? Um, yeah, we've pursue? seen. We've had a lot of success in that area. I mean, our first acquisition uh, ever, actually, by the FT, was a business called Money Media. Um, 10 or more years ago. And that fit a pattern that we've had a lot of success with, which was to take us, they're in fund management, to take a specific uh, specialist area, um, really in digital premium content, and then take it global. And we think there's a lot of opportunity there with the infrastructure and the brand power of the FT to find these specialist. Um, I mean, we're already reasonably specialist. We're a global business, but it's a pretty big niche. Mm -hmm. uh, within that, we think that there's increasingly businesses, and like everything, more and more specialists. So to be able within that 
under that umbrella of the global FT to have those specialist subject areas. We've just been looking at the numbers for um, a product we developed called Due Diligence, which is in the M&A sector, and it's got a very um, loyal audience, and we're building events and forums around the newsletter. So those sorts of specialist areas where you can have mm -hmm. high-quality content, you can do events and forums around that. I think there's a, an awful lot of potential. So it's going broader areas. with you know geographies and also just with coverage, I would assume, going well beyond um, you know finance and economics. And yeah. We obviously already do with FT Weekend, but yeah. it, it opens new... New advertising possibilities, for sure. Yeah, and of course that links back to the whole um, subscriber relationship because people often make the distinction between a subscription model and an advertising model. Well, I, my, my personal view is if you have a strong subscription operation, you have a much stronger advertising proposition because you have the insight, you have the data, you can target much more efficiently. So if you get the subscription right, it's going to be a lot easier to get the advertising mm -hmm. side right too. But how, how has that changed internally, the dynamics, when advertising is a, is a smaller percentage overall? It's been a big journey in, and change in terms of the mindset. I think deeply imbued in a lot of traditional news organizations was that uh, reach fetish. It was how many people can you reach? Uh, what's the circulation volume? And there was a lot more attention on that scale play than on the quality of that relationship and the return on that relationship. I think one of the things that's made the FT successful has been um, a realization through the organization, from the newsroom, from all of the business departments around the importance of the depth of that relationship and the return that you can get uh, on, on, that, on that readership. So I think that has been a real driver of change. Um, yeah, you mentioned the, the platforms. Where would you put the, the relationship right now with Facebook right now? I mean, you guys have tangled in the past, um, weren't very happy with how they were labeling um, uh, promoted content as ads, political ads. Yeah, I mean, look, it's been difficult. And I think the fundamental challenge has been that we've been making the case for a long time um, with Facebook and, and with others that they should do a better job of creating a supportive environment for paid for journalism, that um, the spread of fake news or low quality news um, has actually damaged the ecosystem. And that while it's true that they're investing significantly in trying to address um, some of these problems and hiring fact-checkers, tens of thousands of fact-checkers, that's good. But I feel it's a bit like whack-a-mole that, you know, you deal with one um, source of fake news and another one will pop up. There's a, there's a systemic incentive yeah. to have scale monetizable news. I mean, fake news isn't new. It goes back through the centuries. I was reading recently about the Zinoviev affair back in 1929, I think, or 24, um, when there was a fake news story published in the Daily Mail around um, a alleged Soviet plot. So it's not a new concept, but what is new is it's now systematic. It's monetized as a business model around fake news. Mm -hmm. So in addition to dealing with the symptoms, they should really also think about the, the, the opportunity to support quality news um, as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think that's been a real disappointment with the ecosystem. That so for, how do you mean that? Like, how does that, what does that look? Because I, mean, I think Facebook has gone through these different periods. You know, there was one period where they were courting publishers. Maybe they were jealous of Twitter getting all the love. Um, but then now they're going around saying, don't trust us. We change, we change all the time. Just do not, do not pin your, your future on us because who knows what we're going to do next. Um, but what what would a supportive quote unquote Facebook look like? Being like being a real driver of direct consumer relationships. 
Yeah, I think enabling publishers to um, have the kind of freedom, have the, the ability to make their content available on their terms in mm -hmm. areas of the platform. Um, and at the moment, it's, you know, it's uh, you're aggregated, um, you're optimized uh, in ways that work with the Facebook algorithm, the Facebook system. It's very difficult for a publisher to have that control over the access to their journalism that drives their paid for mm -hmm. models. How about Google and and then Apple? I mean, Google has subscribed with Google and, and Apple is Apple News Plus now. More magazine focused, but... Yeah, well, we're working closely with Google on subscribe with Google. And I think there is potential there to help us... Um, you know, optimize across uh, the Google platforms and systems the way, um, you know, people are consuming and, and subscribing to the FT and get the friction out of that relationship because, you know, let's face it, a lot of the, a lot of the issues around these models relates to ease of access and to projection of relevant material. And frankly, with all of the technology and, uh, and data Google has, that should be a, a rich seam. So th th there are kind of positive, definitely positive areas there. We feel it could move bigger and faster and should. Um, but uh, there are projects that are showing, you know, some potential there. But we think they should scale uh, and 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 develop more quickly. Uh, with Apple, um, you know, we've got a, a long relationship with Apple. <laughs> we have our position on the direct relationship with readers, and they have theirs, and they're different. <laughs> we feel okay. we feel the data should be ours, and they feel it should be theirs. And also, obviously, lately with uh, Apple Plus. I think the uh, the commission or the take from Apple is up to 50%, which seems rather onerous. Okay, so if that's a non-starter for you without the data and without... Like, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, we've been pretty clear. Um, look, we had a good relationship early on, very productive relationship, um, uh, but they then wanted the access to user data um, and for us not to. And that for us has been a core principle of our strategy and our business model, which is having that direct relationship with the reader, which we think is essential. Mm -hmm. So one other thing is, is the FT has been pretty vocal on brand safety and, and how, you know, um, you know, look, these platforms, it goes through, whether it's YouTube today or Facebook tomorrow, there's always, um, there, there's been this regular drumbeat of, of these brand safety crises and, and brands come out and they, and they're outraged. Um, and then they go back to spending like, like they did, um, before. I mean, is this just a, a show or do you think at some point that advertisers will back this up with real budget decisions? I think they have. I think there is real frustration around the environment. As you say, it kind of um, blows hot and cold around the crisis du jour. Yeah. But I think it is a, a general and uh, fundamental concern around you know, certainly the sort of um, high end or, or the, the sort of brands of real integrity. Um, and they do take this very seriously. And I think it's one of the reasons the FT uh, has benefited. And we've been very resilient, actually, uh, in the advertising market because we are such a trusted and safe environment. So I think that has definitely been a consideration when we're talking to some of our big um, marketing and clients and partners. They do feel the FT is a very trusted kind of location to have their brands. And, and that is definitely uh, a juxtaposition from how they feel with a lot of the digital uh, platforms. Do you think some of the the efforts, both on the governmental level with GDPR and, and, and similar legislation, but also with you know Google and, and Chrome having anti-tracking features, and just like, it seems like the, the tide is moving against some of the kind of hyper-targeting um, that has really fed the rise of platforms. Does that end up playing in your favor to some degree on the advertising front when the, the, the pendulum seems to be swinging ever so slightly back to context. 
Yeah, no, I think I think that's true, um, and I do think this sort of hyper targeting clearly comes with risks, as do sort of you know, private networks on these platforms. Um, so you know, um, I think, but what we do is just make sure that the sort of integrity of our relationship and our data uh, is consistent, um, and that overarching sort of brand trust that we've been building for 132 years since we've been around is is something that is actually very valuable and tangible to our, our advertising partners. Okay. John, thank you so much. Thank you. Enjoyed it. And thank you all for listening. Our producer is Aditi Songal. This week, I want to give a shout out to one Simone Crower, who tweeted, just listen to the latest Digiday podcast with Forbes CRO, Mark Howard, who talked about Forbes' native advertising strategy. Brands pay a monthly fee to directly self-publish their content on Forbes. I took some notes. Um, Simone then went on to to provide a picture of notes she took uh, with important highlighted uh, points. That's, that's very nice. Love seeing that. Um, and glad, Simone, that you find our podcast insi- insightful and useful. I hope you will all head to iTunes and or wherever you get our podcasts. Leave us a rating or a review. This helps our podcast grow, find new listeners. Um, we have a goal of hitting uh, 100, what is it, 100 comments? Yes, 100, uh, 100 reviews on uh, iTunes. So please help us get there. We're also on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. If you have any feedback, um, you can always write me. I am brian at digiday.com. You can tweet me. I am at bmrc on Twitter. Um, You can also reach me on LinkedIn. Why not? Uh, Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode.